And let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 34. If you're using uh, your pew Bibles, it uh, can be found on page uh, 463. And we will be reading the whole psalm beginning at verse 1. A psalm written by David. Psalm 34. Hear the word of the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eye of the Lord, the, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against, against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of, all, out of them all. He keeps all his bones, and not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Thus far the reading of God's word. Now, in the very middle of our text today, there's a question. What man is there, asks the psalmist, who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Now, we might be thinking that there is a sense in which this is a redundant question or a rhetoric question to which the answer is obvious. Everyone, everyone desires good life. The same would be the answer here in this building. The same would be the answer anywhere in this neighborhood. The same would be the answer in the city in the state, in the country, really anywhere around the world. The sense is that this question, is, in a way, is 
unnecessary. It is obvious. The answer is obvious. Everyone desires good life. Yet if we asked what good life looked like and how one achieved it, that's where we would begin to get different answers. To some of us, even here tonight, good life means good health. For others, it means much wealth. Maybe some of us today would give everything for suffering in their lives to cease right this very moment. Others might be thinking that a happy life, a good life, is a perfect spouse or a perfect job or something within your hobby or maybe even a toy that you've been dreaming about for the whole year. What is it that you and I daydream about? What is it that we look forward to during the very hard day at work? A very hard day at home? What is our escape when life presses as hard against the wall? That is ultimately and truly our idea of the good life. You see, whether we say this with our lips or not, functionally we are saying one of two things. We either say, if only I had A or B or C or D, I would be happy. I would have a good life. Or we say it negatively, if I could avoid A, B, C or D, oh, that would be a good life. That would really make me happy. Yet, we find a different picture in tonight's text. We find a vision for happiness, a vision for a fulfilled and, and happy life that does not depend on what's happening around us, on our circumstances, neither a vision that depends on how well we ourselves are doing, our performance but rather on something entirely different. And my hope tonight is that at the end of our time together, we will have the answer and the secret, as our title tonight says, to a good life. And as we look at our text today, with a text this long, of course, we will be selective but as we look at it, we will look at it under two headings, under two questions, simple questions. First, what does good life look like? And secondly, how do we get it? What does it look like and how do we get it? First, what does it look like? If we look at our text, if you have your Bibles with you, you'll notice at least three things about good life. We have the psalmist setting himself up as an example of what this happy, fulfilled, good life looks like. And we notice three things. We notice that it is a life of praise. We notice that it is a life of favor. And we notice that it is a life of peace. Praise, favor, and peace. Now, if you look at verses 1, 2, and 3, what stands out is the boldness and rigor and excitement and passion and zeal and delight with which the psalmist who is David, 
King David of Israel, says, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will praise him. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Happy life, good life, is a life of praise. It is a life lavishly characterized by praise. What is so astonishing is that David says, I will bless the Lord, as though there is something that he or any of us could give to God to make me, him more complete than he already is. Rather, the case is the opposite. It is God who blesses and we who receive his blessing. But what can we, what can David say that God has not heard? What can David do that God would be surprised by? What can David give that God would, does not have? What can David possibly save, say that would add to the blessing that is within God. And yet David says, I will bless the Lord. And what that is expressing, it is a deep passion, a humble desire to exalt the name of God as though by blessing it, we could return the favor, although we perfectly understand that there's nothing that we can do to to add to the blessing of God's name. And yet our desire is to speak of God with that passion, with that zeal. That's what good life is marked by. It is praise. It is blessing uttered upon the name of the Lord. And it is not only uttered in God's presence alone, but it is a life that desires to share the praise with others. It is a life that's overwhelmed by God's goodness to the degree that it speaks, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, verse 3, and let us exalt His name together. It is a public confession. This psalm is a public confession of personal goodness of God. It is an equivalent of what we have today as personal testimonies. Or we have another example in the Bible, in the New Testament, of something like this, where the woman at the well in John chapter 4 runs to the, to the town, to her townsmen and townswomen, and says, Come, see this man who told me everything about me. Is this perhaps the very Messiah, the very Christ? It is that kind of zeal and that kind of praise and that kind of worship that marks a good life. And of course, the moment we, we stand before with this fact, it poses a question, doesn't it? Is our life characterized by the same praise? And another question, well, if not, well, we wonder then, what is it that makes for such a praise? What is it that causes David to speak these words? We don't want to be these people who are uh, a few inches above ground, floating, lofty phrases, high phrases that have very little to do with this life, especially when things are not going uh, well. They appear to be blind 
ignorant of how life actually is, and keep on saying things that just don't make sense. But David does not look that way. He does not appear to be that way. In fact, if there's praise, there's a reason or the cause of praise. And that cause is God's favor. Good life is a life of God's favor. Beginning with verse 4, David gives us reasons why it is that he is so excited, so eager to praise and bless God's name. It is the fact that he sought God and God answered. It is the fact that when he cried out to the Lord in distress, the Lord did not remain silent, but rather answered, replied, delivered him out of his distress. What we see here is a man who received Peace received relief from his anxiety, from his uh, fear. And also, moreover than that, a man who was delivered from his physical threat. We see a man who sees God's favor in his life. This is probably a good, a good um, point in our sermon to, to note is something to observe something about the background of this of this text you see here is david who's been running from king saul running from persecution and david thought that it was a good idea that it was reasonable to run away from saul into the territory into the land of the Philistine king, who's named here in the subtitle Abimelech. David thought that was a good idea, and oh, how wrong David was. And he quickly realized that, that when he, standing before the gates of the king, heard the king's men say, Wait, is this not David of whom it is sung that Saul has his thousands, but David has his ten thousands? Is this not the blessed David, the David? And David knew he was in trouble. And David pretended to be a madman. He had spittle run down his uh, chin. He was making marks on the gate of the Philistine king. And the king said to his men, Have I not enough madmen around me, yet you bring another one? What do I have to do with this one? And so he lets him go. And David sees that God was gracious, that while he was jumping out of the pan into the fire, God spared his life. This is a man who sees God's favor. And in fact, if you look at the text, you'll soon notice these pa this pattern of cause and effect going throughout the whole text. David says, I sought the Lord, and he answered. Verse, five, verse, uh, verse, four, uh, verse 5, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. And we could go on and on and on, but the fact is there's a pattern David calls out and God replies. David reach out, reaches out and God responds. David 
cries out for help, and God gives help. And that is an indication of the favor of the Lord. You see, we are pressed with this reality that here on earth, in this life, there's only two ways that God relates to us. And we see these beautifully painted in verses 15 and 16. Rich imagery of the Lord looking at us in one of two ways. It says in verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. Here's an image of God looking at a person as a father, as a parent, looks at their child. With love, protection, and readiness to act, should something happen to the child. Now look at verse 16, where it says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here's the Lord looking at another person to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But he's looking differently. He's looking at them like a a war leader. An army uh, general is looking at his enemies, at the enemy army waiting, eager to to charge and to annihilate, uh, annihilate them. There's one of two ways that God looks at each one of us. And from the text tonight, it is clear that it is the former that indicates the favor of God, that God facing us as a loving parent, and it is that way that the Lord looks at the psalmist. A good life, therefore, is a life of God's favor. Finally, a good life is a life that, as a life of God's favor, results in peace. This favor of God results in peace. We notice in our text, David says, Those who look to him, that is, to the Lord, those are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, those who see God's uh, face, those who are in his favor, they're reflecting the, the glory and the majesty and the goodness of God. It is as though they're standing in front of a sunlight that's about to set, covered with his dazzlingly, beautifully, richly, yellow color. Their faces radiate the the grace and the goodness of God. And they have peace. Now, at this point, we might be wondering, well, it, it, it is fairly easy for David to be this excited and to be this worshipful and, and, and eager to praise God because the hardship is behind him. It's far easier to praise God, you might be thinking, when things get good again. When the trouble is over, you breathe out. There's relief. Oh, how easy it is to praise God. But, well, 
Try praising God in the midst of suffering, O King David, and let's see how you fare then. But you see the, the wonderful thing about this uh, text and especially about the background. It is that David does what he does here, not only when things get better, but in the midst of trial and suffering. How do we know that? There is another psalm in, in, in the Bible, Psalm 56, and that psalm records David's prayer, David's words, while he's still in captivity under the Philistine king. The same situation. One psalm speaks, he speaks after being delivered. Another psalm, he's still in the midst of trouble. And this is remarkable, uh, just remarkable what he says. Psalm 56. David repeats twice the following phrase. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid What can flesh do to me? Notice, in God whose word I praise. He says also, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. But again, the praise of God, that's on David's lips. It does not cease when things get bad. He continues to praise and trust the Lord, whether in good times or in bad times, whether in the midst of suffering or having come out of suffering, David's circumstances do not define the quality and the goodness of his life. Neither does his performance. Again, you might think, well, he's a king. He's in a position now to praise and and, and he has all the tools to, to have a good life. Yet when David's saying these words. He's anointed to be king, but he's yet still running from Saul. As we've seen, he's not a man of privilege and of of abundance at this time. No, he's a man on the run. He is the man whose status as the king of Israel is recognized by God and maybe another handful that walk with him, that follow him. This is not a man on the throne in Jerusalem. Not yet. And still, we see the same thing. He's praising God. He's praising God in persecution. He's praising God in delivery. He's showing us that a good life does not depend on our performance And it does not depend on our circumstances. Good life according to God's word is so in spite of these, not because of them. It is a life of praise. It is a life of of, um, peace. And it is a life of God's favor. If If it is so, if it does not depend on what's within us or what's around us, then 
naturally, the question is, how do we get this life? What can we do? Or how do we, what is the answer to the question? How does one come into the possession of this good life? How does one begin to look like David in this psalm? And this brings us to our second point. And the psalmist, as we've seen, neither condones our trust in circumstances nor our trust in our own self. But he sets forth a different way to get good life. And and that way is as, as though a coin with two sides. One is identity and another is fear. Identity and fear. The first word is widely used by our culture, positively. The second, not so much. And yet, in this context, both are seen positively. Identity. Verse 2 says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. That word boast speaks to us of a foundation on which our boasting stands, or the content, the substance, the source of our boasting. And David makes it clear that that substance for him is the Lord. Nothing but the Lord. His soul's glory is bound with God. What does that mean? Well, it means that David's object of trust, the object of of his highest, utmost, ultimate trust, is God. Whom do we trust most? What? Do we trust the most? Is it our image in the eyes of others? Is it our work? Is it our family? Is it our things? Is it our cars? Our houses? Is it our health? Our physical shape? What is it? What is it that we trust in? the most. That is what shapes our identity. And for David, David is a beautiful illustration. We've already seen that he, this man is not bound or defined by his circumstances. We also see that this man is not bound or defined, defined by his status. And the reason we see this, the reason that we can trust David when he says that he is boast is in the Lord is the fact that we have this psalm and the fact that we have a subtitle of this psalm the way that it is written. You see, this is unheard of at the day, at the time, and the place of David's life. The common practice for kings and for rulers then was to preserve and to record their successes and to leave out their failures to record their victories and to forget their defeats. 
And so it would be perfectly understandable and natural for King David to forget what happened with the Philistine king, to forget what happened, to leave this out. And yet, what do we have? Not only do we have the King David writing about it, expressing his his gratitude to the Lord, calling himself a poor man, recording this permanently, as having this as an inspired word. And not only that, but we also have a subtitle, an inscription that tells us exactly what was happening in David's life. And I mean a king that is pretending to be a madman at the mercy of his enemy, saliva dripping down their beard, making marks on the gate, pretending to be someone who's lost their marbles? Is that the image that a king would want their subjects to have of them? And yet David does not shy away from this, but makes this actually an occasion to point away from himself and to the Lord and to say, honestly, you can trust me when I say that my soul makes its boast in the Lord because if it didn't, you wouldn't have this account. You wouldn't have this psalm. No. David's identity is bound up with the Lord. Good life is then achieved by placing our ultimate trust in the Lord. It is not saying if I only can have this or that, then I'll be happy. It is not saying if I can, if I can only avoid this or that, I'd be happy. But it is saying with Job, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is my all. He is whom I trust. Identity is one side of the coin, one uh, one part of the pathway to a good life. The second part is this dreadful word, fear. You'll notice that in verses 8 and 9, and then in 10 and 11, David closely connects fear of the Lord with the goodness of life and God's favor. In fact, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. And then he says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there that, who desires life? This is how you do it. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And on the surface, this seems to be saying that if you want good life, be good. Be good and you'll you'll get good. You do good and the Lord returns the favor. And yet this is not what David says. In fact, what he is saying, what what he means by the fear of the Lord, is to put it simply... A call to live out our identity. To live in line of who we are. Our highest trust, the highest trust of David 
is bound up with the Lord. And he says, fear the Lord, meaning live in line with who you are in the Lord. Live as the one trusting in the Lord, as the one in Lord God's favor. You see, he's not introducing a condition that if you're good, God is good. But he's saying, for you to experience the reality of who you are in Christ, in the Lord, you're called to live in line with that identity. You are called to live an obedient and faithful life. So much of our struggle as Christians in life comes from this reality that while we claim to be in Christ, we don't live as those who are in Christ. While we claim to know Him and to have Him, we fail to live as those who know Him and who have Him and who belong to Him. Sin has this effect on us. Sin has this effect of blinding us to the identity that we possess. The psalmist is not saying, your salvation depends on your works. The psalmist is saying, there is a sense in which your experience of your salvation and of your identity in Christ depends on your life. How you, how you live affects your perception of the security you have in Christ. This is a call to see our identity and our lifestyle match. That's the pathway to good life. That's the recipe for good life. And you might be sitting there and wondering, well, isn't this one of those instances where you promise an answer and you don't deliver? Because what is the comfort of this? You know, it almost sounds like you're calling us to do better. Just do better and things will get better. But most of us look at our lives and we see that gap between who we are in Jesus and how we live. And the question still remains, how do we bridge the gap? How do we bridge, how do we see consistency in our lives between who we are by faith and how we live? And this is where we come to the conclusion of our sermon and to the answer as to how that gap is bridged. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that David throughout the psalm speaks of a righteous man. He speaks of, of those who receive God's favor as righteous. 
The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And what bridges the gap is not our circumstances. You know, when things get better, we feel better. When things get worse, we feel worse. Not our performance. When we're doing well, we feel good about ourselves. When we do, uh, we're not doing well, we, feel we put ourselves down. But it is the security of righteousness before the Lord. Security of our righteousness before the Lord. It is the assurance that we are in fact in God's favor. And that there is righteousness that can be both that which belongs to us and that which God considers to be righteous. And this is how we see this in in this psalm. In verses 19 and 20, David, whether intentionally or not, uh, shifts to um, singular. He says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And these, as we now know, were words of prophecy. And they were fulfilled, as the Apostle John says in his gospel, on the cross. He says that uh, the words were fulfilled in Christ, that none of his bones were broken. Now when we think about it, why is it that John would mention this? Why is it? Why is it important that Jesus' bones were not broken? And the answer is that those words serve as a stamp of approval. Stamp of confirmation that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, died on the cross as a perfectly righteous man. That as he died on the cross, that the fact that his bones remained intact is a very interesting, beautiful way of the wisdom of God to tell us that Jesus Christ was deemed worthy to be called a righteous man. And so, with that then lies our hope. That it is not our righteousness that gets us good with God and gets us a good life, but it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. When we were not able, He was willing and able. He took our unrighteousness, paid for it, and now credits His righteousness to us. And this is the beauty of the gospel. And this is ours, mine and yours, through faith. What's required of you is to believe. What you're being called to tonight is to believe both that you yourself cannot produce the righteousness that's required and that Jesus Christ did produce the righteousness required and that as you believe Him, that righteousness is counted as yours. And then you can join the King David here 
and say, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his trouble. This poor woman cried and the Lord heard her and saved her out of all of her trouble. This is the way to bridge the gap between who we are and how we live. Notice that the reason David worships and praises and cries in joy is this deep, strong realization that God has delivered him out of death. And it is that same realization that God has delivered us out of the pangs of death through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that leads us to praise, worship, and a lasting desire to serve and obey our God, to keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit, to turn away from evil and to do good, to seek peace and to pursue it. And the beauty of it all is that while David invites others to to worship and praise God with him for what God has done for him, Jesus Christ invites us to praise God in him and through him rejoice in what God has done for us. And insofar as we understand this and are transformed by this reality, we will be willing to live for our God We will be marked by the fear of the Lord, by this consistency between who we are and how we live. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we pray that the good news of the gospel would not be for us a mere gateway into eternal life, a mere uh, gateway, starting point, but that it would be our companion throughout our lives here on earth. Lord, it is not a cliche to say, show us Christ, give us Christ, feed us with Christ, nourish us with him, Help us through the work of the Spirit, open our eyes to see him again and again and again anew. And this very evening to see him as the perfectly righteous man whose bones were preserved as a seal of approval and that in his righteousness we too can be counted righteous in your sight. And if righteous, then in your favor. And in, if, it, if you're in your favor, when, then with peace. And if we possess peace in the face of death, temptation, suffering, then whatever come our way, we can praise and worship you and have your praise continually on our lips. And so we pray for this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.